Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the first edition of TLS Voices in 2017. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. I'm joined as ever by commissioning editor and the podcast's unchallenged pronunciation guru, Thea Lenadutsi, who today looks like Daria from MTV in the mid-90s, which is a reference that not everyone will get, Thea. I've taken my, my willy hat off. You now. have. <laughs> yeah. But the personality is still there. The sort of the Similar. Cy- the cynical personality remains. <laughs> Uh, did you have a good Christmas? Uh, I did, yes. Are you gouty? I, I am not. I am n- I'm nowhere near noble enough for such a noble disease. I can't help but feel like you're, you're positioning me as your as a baldric to your blackadder. Oh, don't <laughs> say that. <laughs> Daria, Daria is, the, is the brains of the operation, from what I can remember. Uh, before we get to the show, I do want to tell you about a way you can get a cheap subscription to the TLS. Simply go to tlssubs.imbmsubs.com forward slash pod one. Which sounds quite difficult, so why don't you Google TLS subscriptions and then if you type pod1 in the offer code tab, you'll be able to get six issues for six quid, which is a bargain if ever there was one. Google TLS subscriptions and type pod1 in the offer code tab. Coming up on the show today, our cover piece is a fascinating and shocking examination of the history of lobotomy, a monstrous 20th century practice of dubious scientific provenance. In an act of truly fine nominative determinism, Andrew Skull has reviewed the book Patient H. M and we'll be explaining in all of the unsettling details. Uh, keeping in the mid part of the 20th century, Lisa Hilton has reviewed a book called The Riviera Set about the period between 1920 and 1960, dubbed The Golden Years of Glamour and Excess. It should fit right in here, this being such a glamorous, not to say excessive podcast. And finally, we'll be considering the legacy of Joseph Conrad, the Polish French writer who has become so central to the English canon. Kate Simonson has reviewed two reissues of Conrad's novel Victory and some other books about him. She'll be speaking to Thea and me later on. So Andrew Skull's review of Patient H.M. by Luke Kittrick is filled with rather terrifying, almost cinematic moments. It begins with a scene in 1948 in Hartford, Connecticut, where two lobotomists perform without apparent scruple and one illegally without any license their different approaches to lobotomy on two patients, although one might equally call them victims. William Beecher Scoville of Yale was one of the surgeons, Walter Freeman of George Washington University, something of an artisan with an ice pick, it would seem, was the other. It's the tale of Scoville that Kittrick tells, the moral monster, according to Andrew, who went on to operate on the eponymous patient HM. 
He was really called Henry Mollison, who had suffered a traffic accident, leaving him concussed and prone to epileptic seizures. In Scoville's dubious care, he was lobotomised and left without any long-term memory. Indeed, his real identity was, and this is a strong way of putting it, murdered in the clinical process. He went on to become a helpless subject for experimentation by another medical figure who also should have known better, Susan Corkin. It's a fascinating and, and heartbreaking story told in the TLS rather brilliantly by Andrew Skull, who joins us now. Uh, Andrew, before we get to the fate of, of Henry Morlaison, uh, you say in the piece that there were thousands of lobotomies performed in the US from 1936 onwards. What was the basis for it and, and when was it finally stopped? And please reassure me it was finally stopped at some point. Mm. <laughs> it it sort of died a lingering death as a procedure. Scoville apparently was still performing lobotomies into the early 1970s, so uh, a very long time. And uh, Walter Freeman did his last lobotomy in the 1960s, so, so it did persist quite a long time. Lobotomy was invented by a Portuguese neurologist named Negas Moniz, uh, in uh, 1935, and Walter Freeman, who was already acquainted with him, began to try the procedure with his neurosurgical colleague Jim Watts in 1936 in Washington, D.C. And initially, it proceeded rather slowly. There were some hundreds of cases by the early 1940s. The real acceleration came after after World War II. And the claim somehow, the, the, the rationale for the operation was really murky. Uh, there'd been a number of cases of people who'd suffered brain damage and it, uh, to their frontal lobes, and that clearly altered personality. Uh, and as well, there'd been some experiments at Yale on chimpanzees who'd become, if we can answer, uh, if we can sort of reduce them to human terms, they'd become somewhat neurotic in the course of experiments on them with memory. And by slicing their frontal lobes, uh, at least one of them became more docile. If you read those reports carefully, you would have seen those patients and those chimpanzees suffered really serious deficits as, as a result. Uh, but they did seem to, in some instances, calm down, to no longer be troubled by uh, their uh, demons. Uh, and really, the procedure had no more warrant than that. It became widely adopted after, after World War II. I think the war sort of slowed some of the diffusion of it. Uh, and there's a lot of talk that it was used uh, on only on desperate cases, and that is absolutely not true uh we can we can see early on for example that uh freeman was operating on people who were still outpatients in his early cases one of the most famous cases he operated on was rosemary kennedy jack kennedy's sister uh who was rendered essentially um close to a vegetable by the operation you give an example actually in the book which i have an extraordinary uh, in the many extraordinary stories you tell in in, in this review william scoville again he's the grandfather of the author of the book luke kitchick yeah. and we'll get to the main story in the book but tell us what happens to his wife which seems to be a classic example of someone who is not a desperate case what what happens to her 
Yes. Well, Scoville uh, enrolls in the Army Medical Corps during World War II, is posted to rural Washington State, begins an affair. Uh, His wife is with him with three small children. She discovers the affair and has some kind of breakdown. She hallucinates, tries to commit suicide, and she's sort of bundled on a train, and the whole family moves back east to Hartford, Connecticut, where Scoville has had clinical privileges for some while. She's put in the hospital and she's given a variety of physical treatments that were used to experiment on mental patients at the time, ECT in particular, and and some hydrotherapy and some fever therapy. And finally, in the book's last uh, chapter or two, uh, the author reveals that his grandmother was lobotomized by his his grandfather, um, which is a shocking kind of uh, revelation and uh, obviously a deep ethical problem. And, and you say, I mean, just to quote you, one of the many poignant scenes in the book is his, this, and this to me is kind of this extraordinarily cinematic gothic moment, is his recital of a Thanksgiving dinner at his grandparents' house, where Bam Bam, that's his grandmother, sat silently amid the family while her husband and his new wife, a younger, more attractive model, presided over proceedings. Yeah, no, I found that account. I mean, so that's my rendition of it. But um, it's chilling to think about about what was going on there. Uh, and uh, you know, I even before I got to the end of the book, because I've obviously read a lot of uh, the lobotomy literature and a lot of case records, I was reading uh, Dietrich's account of his grandmother, and I was thinking, this is somebody with frontal lobe damage. And sure enough, then there's the revelation at the end of the book that that pops up, and and it really is. It it's indicative of something that I found in both Scoville's life and and Walter Freeman's the other major lobotomist I, who, who's mentioned, there's this, this kind of callousness, this inability to think through the consequences of their actions or, or really take responsibility for them that's, that's absolutely chilling. There's, um, a, there's a sense reading your piece that, and, and you mentioned hydrotherapy and, and pyrotherapy where, where patients were stuffed into kind of a coffin-like vessel and heated to mm. uh, artificial fever point. There's a sense that in the mid 1900s psychiatry had reached its own kind of fever point and it was like this neo-victorian swan song yeah. before is that before pharmacology took over or in in some senses yes although in some ways the discovery of um, the uh, so-called major tranquilizers or antipsychotics is in some ways a continuation of that in that it, it was a serendipitous jump into the dark that that happened to work uh, somewhat better than than what had gone before but yes in the beginning in the 19 teens and 20s there was a, a sort of explosion of experimentation on captive mental patients i've written a book myself about a similarly gothic story where patients had their teeth and tonsils all removed and then were systematically eviscerated, had stomachs and colons and spleens and uteruses and all sorts of bits uh, removed uh, almost at random. And um, that went on for, oh gosh, uh, more than a decade and a half. And it was uh, the thing, quite, and explain this to, to me, Andrew, if you can, because yeah. I, I find this fascinating. Are these people with no empathy? Are they, are they to a certain extent, sociopathic? They're, they're, they're kind of almost mentally ill themselves in the manner in which they're yeah. pursuing their practice. Because to be able to strap someone into a coffin and heat them to yeah. the point of fever or eviscerate them, or mm-hmm. um, it just seems to lack any form of reasonable 
empathy. Yeah. That I can't understand how a medical profession could have got itself into that. Do you, do you understand it? Can well, you, can you yes, I it? do understand the question. So let me tell you a, a story. I'm working on a, a larger project in, that involves American psychiatry in this era. And I was recently, a couple of days ago, rereading an autobiography Walter Freeman did for his kids in which he describes an occasion where a woman's brought to his office. Uh, she's had a relapse of her depression. And uh, there's no one else around, and he proceeds to give her ECT unmodified, and people uh, convulse massively as a result of that, unless, I mean, that procedure is not followed now with ECT, but, but it was then. This woman breaks both her thighs. She's still unconscious. He gives her a shot of morphine and goes off to see his other patients, leaving this helpless woman in his office, comes back to find her screaming in agony and is sued, uh, and his insurance company pays up. And Freeman's comment at the end was she was surprised at the end of the lawsuit they wouldn't shake hands with him and that he should have performed a lobotomy on her because the fact she'd relapsed from her depression was kind of indicative of mm. uh, the fact that she was, a, you know, that's why, that's why she complained. So is he just a bad apple, or is that indicative of a sort of arrogance of no, the profession? I mean, or? you know, Henry Cotton, who's the guy who did most of the eviscerating, and he had a counterpart in England who did the teeth and the tonsils and sinuses, a man named Thomas Chivers Graves, which is kind of an unfortunate name. Those two were, were very, very similar. You know, Cotton even uh, did abdominal surgery on one of his two sons, and he yanked all their teeth and his wife's teeth uh, it, it to, uh, to, as a prophylactic measure, which didn't work because both his sons, had to say, ended up committing suicide. Um, so, yeah, there's something really off. And I think the other feature of this is that mental patients in this period were incredibly vulnerable. They'd lost all civil rights. Uh, and uh, they were confined out of, out of public view. On top of that, they were a huge expense. Mental hospitals in the U.S., for example, tended to absorb up to a third of a state's budget, just that all by itself in those years. So there was a lot of pressure to do something about the problem, uh, a sense of desperation, I think, among the psychiatrists. And, but it's a bit, it's a bit like using the, the death penalty as a, as a, a reason, yeah. you know, as an excuse to, to deal with yeah, overcrowding it, it, in prisons. Mm, the the, the, the diathermy, the heating in the coffin-like device, is a sort of variant on the one of these other treatments that had actually led to a Nobel Prize in medicine in 1927, and that was giving malaria to patients with general paralysis of the insane, which had been shown in the early 20th century to be tertiary syphilis. So you had neurological and psychiatric symptoms combined. These patients died a horrible lingering death. And uh, it was discovered, allegedly, that um, infecting them with malaria would, uh, in some instances, cure what was otherwise an incurable condition. Let's get to uh, patient HM briefly, yes. if, if we may. So, so, so he has a, a traffic accident. It leaves him concussed and prone to epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Scoville lobotomizes him. And then yes. kind of Scoville's role in the story stops a little bit, doesn't he? And he's taken... T- tell, tell us what happens to him, because it's not just about Scoville that where yes. there is blood on the hands of people here. No, not at all. What happens is Scoville 
kind of acknowledges that the results of the operation have essentially been catastrophic. Uh, when he goes in and does the surgery, he targets an area of the brain that's a backward of the frontal lobes where he normally operates, uh, where he thinks memory where he thinks the, uh, the, the seizures may reside, even though there's no evidence of that when he actually looks at the brain. And he proceeds to vacuum out chunks of this poor guy's brain bilaterally. And the result is he's rendered somebody with a, uh, a memory that, of events that sort of only goes backward a few seconds. And Scoville essentially washes his hands of him at that point. Uh, and he's handed over to clinical psychologists who examine him as a case of um, profound memory loss and try to work out how human memory works. That's why H.M. is such a famous patient, because from the early 1950s, when the surgery is performed, until he dies in the early 21st century, he becomes a kind of guinea pig for figuring out what's been lost and what memory he has, in fact, retained. Initially, it's a researcher up in McGill who only deals with the case for a fairly short time because she's got other fish to fry. She's got a broader set of research interests. And then, oddly enough, a close friend of the author's mother, who's then at McGill but transfers to MIT, takes charge of the case. And Suzanne Corkin... Uh, is one of the most eminent female neuroscientists, and she really builds her career in many ways on Henry, or H.M. as he's known. He's, his identity is carefully shielded. And for decades, she controls access to him, um, and on Dietrich's account, really becomes quite proprietorial towards him, uh, and is not at all uh, shy about um, keeping others out or imposing restrictions on them and, let, and let's be clear she, she does things like she, she she's responsible for experiments to see whether he has a high pain threshold or not there are burn, the one there yeah. with the burns on his chest and there's n there's no aspect of ethical consent really sought by anyone who'd be responsible for him is there no in fact for until uh 1991 or two I think it's 91, she has, uh, she has him sign the consent. Uh, well, he can't remember long enough if he's told something what's about to happen. So, you know, that obviously poses a serious uh, ethical problem. And she gets a bit panicky on Dietrich's account in the early 90s, and she gets a, a court-appointed guardian, and she hand-selects who it is, uh, the son of somebody that... Uh, H.M. Had, had resided with in earlier years, and he's un, either a very distant relation or no relation at all. And he simply signs off, never sees the patient, apparently, and signs whatever they put in front of him. So it's kind of a, a rather dubious kind of ethical device. So, so I, mean, I, I mean, I could talk about this forever, Andrew. We'll, we'll have to, 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 to leave it at some point. But just, just so we, could, we can be very pleased with ourselves that we look back at the 50s and think what was going on but this was going on in the 80s and 90s and and 2000s yes. and, and even into the 2000s yes it was so there's a cautionary is there a i mean you, see your, you i know you've written for us before about sort of the crises yeah. of psychiatry and problems in psychiatry is there a is there a cautionary tale here that still has a modern relevance i think so and in fact you know if you look 
at the drugs revolution, there's similar, you know, there are, there are issues there. You may recall there was a big fuss about the possibly increased suicidal tendencies among children and adolescents being treated with uh, antidepressants. And it's the, what happened there is data spilled out from the drug company files showing they knew about that and had actively suppressed it. Uh, and it was only legal action that forced that into the public view. So, yes, I think there are ongoing issues here. I think mental patients are almost a uniquely vulnerable population. Uh, and we have made some strides in terms of, you know, informed consent and, and uh, ethical kind of, kind of limits. But it's an ongoing, ever-present possibility when people are really desperate they're willing to seek out desperate remedies, or if they're not willing to do it, their families are, and the people treating them uh, often seem to be. So it's a it's a really very troubled. The the whole thing sort of makes you think of that, you know, the the Milgram experiment of the sixties, where basically mm-hmm. the treatment given to one human by one human to another tells you more about the psychology of the person who's who's dishing out the treatment than it does about the person under observation. Yeah, not just the psychology, but the sort of structural imbalance mm. there of um, of power and knowledge and the willingness of some people to take advantage of that situation. Sometimes quite, you know, m- motivated by uh, not just the desire for fame, but their desire to do something about the situation. But everybody really seems to forget the Hippocratic injunction, first, do no harm, mm-hmm. you know, and they rush into these things. And um, it's really very, very disturbing sometimes what happens as a result. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for, for joining us uh, now. And uh, I do think it's, it's a wonderful review. I, I was saying to you uh, before that it's one of my favorite reviews since I've been editing the paper because it's just such a compelling story and because everyone can empathize with what it must be like when the state gets hold of you or when something happens to you that's catastrophic and the people who are around you are not helping they're actually making things a lot worse and it's a it's a fantastically sort of gothic and chilling tale and I think you, you tell it beautifully so thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It's been fun to chat. I mean, it's it's an extraordinary story, isn't it? And yeah. it, it, I think it's, we can all say, look at the fifties. They were they were unregulated then, but I suspect that it still goes on in some mm. form or other in terms of how drugs are issued or how people are pathologized. You know, mm. it wasn't that long ago that homosexuality was considered a mental illness. I think it was like nineteen eighty something that was finally no longer regarded mm. as a mental illness in America. Well, to come back to what we were saying about whether there's a cautionary tale to be extracted from all of this, it's it's a it's a cautionary tale about about hubris yeah medical medical hubris i think one of the more for me the possible well i mean there are many petrifying aspects to the piece but there's the the aspect of the production line approach that i think it's walter freeman wanted to wanted to be able to roll out and do do as many lobotomies in as as little time as possible that's to make it so normal to normalize it to the point of just being yeah just being a routine intervention 20 or more operations in a single day he was capable of and that was more or less the case as i understand it with ect with electroconvulsive therapy and if you think i mean i got sucked down a rabbit hole of looking at lists of famous people who have had it and it's absolutely astounding and you know obviously sylvia plath and then 
Clementine Churchill, who yeah. who will probably mention in the next piece, and uh, Hemingway, Judy Garland, it Janet Frey. I think it still happens, though. I think it can be done constructively yeah. and with proper. Well, the thing the thing with Sylvia Plath and with I think many of these cases is that they it, it causes these conv- convulsions, and they they weren't given anything to prevent the convulsions. So it's almost like the convuls- the convulsions, as Andrew um, was saying before, are, are the, one of the more damaging aspects yeah. of it. It's it's um, grim it's grimly fascinating stuff, isn't yeah. it? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. But let's, as you say, let's stay in the, in the sort of long-gone demimonde of the mid-20th century. Uh, Lisa Hilton has reviewed a book called The Riviera Set, 1920 to 60, The Golden Years of Glamour and Excess, which should cheer us up a little bit after what we've just been talking about. It tells the tale of the Chateau de l'Horizon, a ho- house in the Côte d'Azur attended by the playboy and playgirl set of that period. It's got to be said right away, Lisa is not an unequivocal fan of the book. Some revealing lines in the review include the resulting experience is like being caught indoors in a very long mistral with nothing to read but the Daily Mail diary. Or we remain on the outside, eternal plebs rubbernecking through the bougainvillea. Or the books retain <laughs> the book retains all the rancid charm of champagne halitosis. So Lisa's here now to explain to Thea and me why she's so in, shy and retiring on the subject of this book. Lisa, how are you doing? Good afternoon. Hi, it's nice to be with you again. Good book then? You enjoyed it? Um, oh dear, it did sound awful hearing those things read out. It always sounds so cruel. I almost never, ever write bad reviews. I usually refuse to, to give a bad review. I'll give the book back and not do the piece. But this one really got on my nerves. And I think the reason was, was that 
it was a book that had so much padding in it. it. It was possibly a reasonably interesting magazine article, you know, house built by enterprising American actress who knew some interesting people, Churchill, Ali Khan, lovely. It, it, it was a Sunday colour supplement piece at best, which had been padded out painfully into a, a book of over 400 pages. And it was just agonising. I mean, endless descriptions of things which didn't happen at the Chateau de l'Horizon at all. And you know, endless um, descriptions of you know the, the clothes people wore and fascinating pieces of information such as you know what Doris's maid did when she unpacked from the Time Bleu. I mean, it was it was really an ordeal to get to the end of it. Uh, I definitely got the sense of that, Lisa, from <laughs> from reading it. Uh, what do we learn? So, if you were to pitch this as a as a magazine uh, article rather than as a book, what's the good stuff? What's the what, what, what? Why why do we care about any of these characters? What's the well, what's I, the I good think, thing about this house? I think that the the Riviera was really the place where our present day cultural fascination with wealth and celebrity begins. It was where rich, rich people went to to perform. Uh, the, the theatre of their lives in a very public fashion, which hadn't really happened before. I mean, one thinks of the, the watering places of, uh, of 19th century, like sort of Baden-Baden, but until the Riviera, until the advent of sort of celebrity publishing and film, people couldn't really see what was going on. And it did become um, a nexus for all sorts of fascinating characters. I mean, great artists, great writers, performers, politicians. It, it, it was certainly a place which attracted a great many fascinating people. Unfortunately, none of them were in this book. But the place itself is, is I think, has, has a sort of eternal charm. And I think perhaps also uh, in, in present uh, wintry climes, in every sense of the word, the idea of escaping for an afternoon of, of bliss basking in, in the sun of the Côte d'Azur could be quite appealing. Um, the book does feature the, the marriage of Rita Hayworth and Ali Khan, who was not an uninteresting character. Um, and it also features Winston Churchill, uh, who took his holidays at Maxime's and House the Chateau d'Horizon for many years. So there are certainly some interesting characters who, who walk onto the stage. The problem is that when they get there, they don't do a great deal. Because people, people on holiday often don't. I mean, when people on uh, go to the Riviera, went to the Riviera, was there a sort of performative aspect of it? Were people showing off oh, by very, going there? Oh, very, very much so. I mean, then, then as now, it was, it was a place to be seen, and people were very ostentatious. I don't hold any brief for the Riviera personally. I think it's a ghastly place. But it's certainly got a certain kind of, yes, rather showy glamour to it. But it's, it's, it's all veneer. There's, there's this kind of no substance underneath. And, and actually, of course, there were many really interesting people living there. Um, Henry James. Uh, Matisse Scott was living there. Picasso was living there. Um, all sorts of writers were there. But they, we just never quite feel that they're part of, of this narrative of this particular story, which ostensibly centres on the house. And instead we have to make do with the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, about whom I think we've heard all quite enough. Just, you mentioned the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, and in the review you, you, recall, you call them repulsive cretins. Well, they fantastically horrible people. Well, uh, <laughs> make the case for the repulsive cretinism, because I, I enjoyed that, but I felt I needed to know more. I mean, aside from the fact that the Duchess is um, is passing secrets to um, her friends at the German Embassy in London all the way up to the war, although they weren't really very secret because she wasn't intelligent enough to remember anything interesting, but their obsession with with rank and hierarchy, um, their sheer rudeness to the people who served them, their, their endless 
sponging, their parsimony. In fact, probably the best passage in the book um, is a dinner party which the Windsors attend with Churchill, and they talk very earnestly about, you know, working conditions for miners. And the observer says that he feels that the Duke talks about um, these, these, these miners as in the same way that he'd, you know, he'd want his horse to be brushed down after riding or his dog to be well fed, that they are functional things and therefore it's best to take care of them but at no sense do they ever appear in the conversation of actual human beings and if that doesn't leave a nasty taste i don't know what does so the kind of there is a i mean not only novels have been written about this and we talked about f scott fitzgerald but there is a there's an attractive in the sense of interesting brittleness and darkness shallowness and facileness about it which is is theoretically a gripping story to consider how these people ostensibly with all this wealth with all this happiness are stabbing each other in the back they're having loveless joyless affairs they're masking whatever holes and depths they're they having problems of in their own lives there, there are fertile grounds here aren't there well, one would think so. I mean, Ms. Lovell has written a very good book on the Mitford sisters. And, of course, the thing about the Mitford sisters is not only were they, um, you know, fantastically diverse, they were amazingly funny. I, I think at least in, in, if there was a drop of self-awareness in any of these characters, or indeed a drop of wit, I mean, it's very, it's very hard to recall jokes and certainly to report them, but they're just not engaging people. I mean, they come across as as rather dull, rather spoiled, and terribly terribly unimaginative um that's always what i think uh, on, on the times i have spent time on, on the Côte d'Azur and you see all these boats crammed into the harbour at Saint-Tropez in what is effectively is you know you're on holiday in a floating sewer and you think you've got all the money in the world and you choose to sit here being ogled by people baking in the sun and, and the stench of feces absolutely foul can't you do something more interesting with your money <laughs> and and I, I felt that about this book that they they were immensely privileged people who could choose to do almost anything and this is what they chose to do I mean when one hears the accounts of the entertainment on offer at the Chateau d'Arizon, one begins to feel positively sorry for them. I think the a, a swearing the, parrot was a Well, the was talking a at the casino, you know, was, was, was a topic for days. <laughs> and these games of backgammon that went on and on. Um, there was an electric moon which was switched on. Um, mm. And I believe at times there was dancing. But it, it doesn't seem a very engaging way to pass one's time, if one has the choice of being anywhere else. Yeah, well, Lisa, in some ways, it's a good place to leave that because what can be more heartening at the beginning of a year to, to consider the misery of the very rich and um, Absolutely. very powerful? I think, it's, I think it's very encouraging and therefore I think I should recommend this book. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to feel better it's... about yourself, do read this book. Uh, Lisa, thank you. So it, it made me laugh a lot reading it and it's been lovely to speak to you. Good, thank you. It was Bye. my pleasure. Because I mean, the book clearly gets close to this notion and Lisa really got into it there, but... If you read, um, it is tender as the night. Mm-hmm. It is. It's the. It's the brittleness. It's the fragile facade mm. behind which all sorts of meanness and and mean spirited and cruelness and brittleness is going mm. on. It's an attractive topic, isn't it? Well, it's yeah. It's a, it's the sense that I suppose if you've got a kind of a dewy glow to your skin, it might be less a sign of of healthfulness and more some uh, inner turmoil yeah. you know, beneath the surface. And, and there is, a, I mean, the, the glamour point. The the the, the subtitle of the book is the golden years of glamour and excess, and people who have pleased about their own glamorous and excessive lives tend to be awful people mm. and there's nothing wrong with occasionally having a poke at awful people no i think it's very healthy yeah very british i would though yeah, would, yeah. <laughs> well, in, in the summer she will we'll do we'll do an episode of this podcast from the coat i've never been to saint tropez yeah well i mean because i grew up in northern italy so it was you just drive along oh so you've seen it yeah, yeah, yeah. and is it ugly is it sort of 
Is it flash and ugly, or do you? Uh, did, did you did certainly you, aspects of it. Do you are. avoid all that though? I, yeah, we didn't. I can't say we went there, and I'm sure there's a reason for that. Uh, we didn't go there all that often. Oh, <laughs> it's a shame. You could, have, you could have told us all about it. Uh, <laughs> I certainly remember Monte Carlo, and that's a very bizarre place. Is it? Yeah. Fun, fun, bizarre, like uh, Vegas, or kind of. I sort bizarre. of. I, I, I was probably maybe 14 the last time I went. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. feeling like I might be arrested at any moment. <laughs> just for not fitting for not, in. For not being rich enough, yeah. <laughs> not being rich enough. Extraordinary stuff. Uh, let's move on. Uh, F.R. Levis, uh, he complained about Joseph Conrad's insistence on inexpressible and incomprehensible mystery, a style that tended to mystify rather than magnify. But as uh, Kate Simmonson argues in her review of books by and about Conrad, this mystification is part of the fun. The abysses, she says, the darkness and the unspeakable horror that pervades so much of his writing are strangely productive and that feels very accurate to me. Victory, uh, his novel which was published in 1915 but written before the start of the war, was that most unforgivable thing for a serious literary novelist, a popular success but it struggled to be recognised or rather and it's been struggled to be recognised as an important novel probably by Conrad. It's subtitled An Island Tale and covers the strange allegorical story of Axel Heist who is living on an island in, in Indonesia and becomes embroiled in false accusations of murder. It ends tragically in sort of Shakespearean fashion with almost every of the major characters dead by their own or others' hands. Uh, Kate Simmonson joins Thea and me to discuss it now. So, Kate, um, can a case be made for victory as a significant novel, do you think? Uh, yes, I think I think you can make that case. Um, partly because uh, some of the recent new editions uh, have pointed out some of the quite uh, interesting strands that run through Conrad's other novels um, are very much present and experimented with in Victory. Um, it has been quite heavily and critically derided and perhaps seen as even ignored until fairly recently. Why is that? Um, is that because it was po- it was seen as populist or popular and a sort of... Because uh, there's, an, there's an adventure tale aspect to it, I suppose, isn't there? Yes. I think, I think Conrad was tapping into a more popular strain and he he does pack a lot into that novel there and uh, there's a lot of adventure murder intrigue suicide uh, it's quite dramatic even melodramatic in places and of course there's the romantic strain which really he doesn't deal with very much in his writing and quite a few people consider it one of his one of his weaker subjects um However, there is, I think, a genuine complexity to the book, which perhaps you can quite easily sail over because of this really quite action-packed plot. Well, you make the great point, I think, in, in the piece that he was born a Pole, lived much of his life as a French seaman and was kind of only thirdly an English novelist. Uh, does yeah. that sort of nomadism, that sort of um, mongrel, I suppose, background to a certain extent, does that help account for his writing style, the enigma at the heart of how he writes, because there's kind of a an enigma of identity at the heart of him as well? Yes, I think you could say that. I think it's worth saying, to begin with, that it really is extraordinary that English was his third language, and yet he has a grasp of the English language that most living people will never have. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how do we account for that? How did he? I mean, how how did he learn English, and how did he learn literary English? Uh, partly the circles that he moved in. He was, of course, great friends with Ford Maddox Ford, and um, 
I think also um, just love to learn. I think he had a genuine interest in mm. uh, in our place in the world, and he explored a lot of that through reading and as the new selection um, of letters, evidences. He he debated a lot of really quite philosophical, uh, philosophical and deep issues with this magnificent coterie of contemporary thinkers. Um, but he was, <laughs> although he had an incredible grasp of the written English word, he he was incredibly uh, self-conscious about his ability to speak English. He he had a very thick accent, <laughs> so wasn't wasn't particularly fond of public speaking. Perhaps that's why there are so many letters. <laughs> it's extraordinary. I mean, it's almost an argument for sort of natural genius here, is it? Because you you kind of imagine how else would a man who starts his life the way he did and, and conducted his professional life as you know as a French sailor would end up being one of the most important writers of English in the 20th century. It, it, it kind of speaks to a certain extent of genius will find its way out eventually. Yes, perhaps. I, I mean, I think I'm always quite reluctant to bestow the word genius yeah. upon someone because it sort of elevates them to uh, an unknowable level, although perhaps that is actually quite apt for Conrad, given his constantly shifting point of view and there is a real difficulty in trying to fix him to any one principle or any one code of belief. Um, so yes, maybe genius does work. It is it is really interesting that he led such a multiple life, and that is definitely very evident in the surface level of his works, from plot and very much to the depths and the overarching concerns of his works. And there's there's a sense in which I mean for 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 better or worse he seems to be a man for our times, isn't there? I mean he rejected absolute sort sort polyphony always and knew that and these are his own words: uh, rules, principles, and standards die and vanish every day. Yes, uh, yeah, he uh, <laughs> he was very much a modern man in that sense, and I think that that really applies to our day to day. The last year is obviously been one of huge upheaval flux and uncertainty and i think uh holding up conrad as someone who really was i suppose both both concerned by but also reassured by i guess the uncertainty of life um can be quite helpful for for people trying to carve their own way in today's quite chaotic and uncertain situation and he's a good Good European as well, I suppose, a pole, a pole French English figure. <laughs> well, exactly. I don't think he would be very happy about Brexit. <laughs> yeah, would, would Conrad, the piece that no one would commission you to write, Kate, Kate but people are interested in, would Conrad like Brexit? Uh, <laughs> one question for you Is reading Conrad a challenge, do you think? Is he a difficult uh, novelist? Cause you, it, you mentioned it briefly in, in the piece, and I wonder, is he difficult in a way that, say, Henry James isn't, in that Henry James is kind of, uh, if you leave the last two novels uh, to one side, kind of clear-cut. It might be a little mm. bit sort of stretched out and attenuated and multiple clauses piled upon one another, but it's it's straightforward in a way that Conrad has this, this heart of darkness, has this heart of mystery about him. Do you think he's a difficult read? Yes. <laughs> in short, yes, he is difficult. I, I always hesitate about who to recommend him to. I think partly that is purely to do with his vocabulary. He has an extraordinary vocabulary. And, you know, I think quite often you would have to sit there with a dictionary. Also, 
people often find uh, prevailing unanswered mystery really frustrating and that I think can put people off they like to have the the clear cut the clear cut the polluted which Henry James quite often does serve up you know his novels are very architectural um detailed beautiful of course um but similarly you know the, the detail of Henry James can also put people off but what I will say is Conrad isn't just an author to be studied he he does have I think a broad appeal it just depends if you're up for a bit of a challenge I think well that's a good way uh, to leave it Kate I think thank you so much for for, for joining us and thank you for, for this great piece and it, it makes me want to go and read uh, Victory and maybe reread a couple of other Conrad so thank you so much I'm so pleased <laughs> your favourite is Secret Agent Secret Agent yeah I still think that was yeah I really enjoyed that I mean it's years since probably about 10 years ago that yeah. I read it but I still I remember it very well which is quite rare and would you recommend it would you hand it out <laughs> I would I recommended it just the other day actually and um, was it accepted uh, it was ordered I think oh really I think it was ordered and I immediately feel really panicked that the person I recommended it to won't like we'll it. Hate it we shall report back on <laughs> yes, that yes I'll on let you know point. yeah lovely that's almost all we have time for this week. Let me thank on behalf of Thea and me, Kate Simonson, Lisa Hilton and Andrew Skull. Please do subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week this year with thoughts on big pieces in the TLS and important cultural and artistic issues. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have been discussing, plus Mark Michale on the much maligned Malthus enjoy that alliteration if you want to Janet Todd on the surprisingly modern Germaine de Style 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 well done Claire <laughs> Pettit on the making of Winston Churchill Edith Hall on whether lefties can enjoy art Jerry Kimber on the New Zealand author Janet Frame who was, I I believe, scheduled to have a lobotomy, in fact. I mean, it's difficult to say that while smiling. It's just the, the coincidence, the coincidence of, and of it. it. it the, we have not put these pieces together deliberately. No, so she was, she was scheduled to have a lobotomy and then um, it was cancelled just de- just days before when I think she won a literary prize, which is... And so the literary prize kind of proved she didn't need a lobotomy? I suppose, or they thought, well, it seems to be, something seems to be working. I mean, Extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, this doesn't feature in the review, but it's a review of Letters of uh, Janet Frame by Jerry Kimber. It's very good. Uh, and also, finally, Sophie Ratcliffe on P.G. Woodhouse's descriptions of getting drunk, or as he put it, being whiffled, stewed to the gills, or tanked to the ovular. <laughs> in other words, not doing ju- uh, dry January. No, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I think of all the things that P.G. Woodhouse would despair in the modern world, and there'd, it be, would there'd, be, yeah, there'd be a lot of them. <laughs> But in the top ten, I think possibly would be dry January. Uh, you can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to read it all and learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. If you Google TLS subscriptions, you can go on, uh, put pod1 into the code box, and you'll get six issues for £6. Uh, and you can come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including new Saro Wiwa on cultural life in Nigeria, Christian Stiegler on how we now watch television, Netflix versus ordinary TV, and 20 questions with Ian McEwen, who doesn't like The Heart of the Matter by Graham Greene. We've had Hilary Mantel and Amy McBride slug off Dickens. Uh, Ian McEwen doesn't like The Heart of the Matter by Graham Greene. Graham Greene fan, do you? Uh- I haven't read that one, so I can't... You can't criticise his choice. I can't criticise on his... No, I can't no. criticise I came to Graham Greene too early. I think I read um, Power and the Glory and other ones when I was like 16 or 17 and therefore didn't really appreciate them. And Perhaps we should get Ian McEwen on the show to... 
to defend, to discuss, to defend himself. We should do that. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and please do review us on iTunes. Uh, do join us next week, where we hope to be talking about sex writing with the wonderful Ema McBride, among other things. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.